Oh my God, we don't. There's no quote at the beginning of that chapter. What happened? That's I checked. I double checked. There's no quote. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing there. So I guess we'll we we could open by quoting Andrew Douglas himself. Oh my God, where's the quote? <laughs> In quotations, Andrew Douglas. <laughs> well, that would actually you, be that actually might be kind of funny. Open up talking about when you were 17 and you were teaching at Piping Hot Summer Drummer. That, yes. that I'm assuming that would have been the first time you taught at Piping Hot Summer Drummer, right? At 17 years old, you weren't teaching before then. Good question. I was either 16 or 17. I can't remember exactly which, but it was my first year in the SFU pipe band. I remember being pretty kind of surprised. First of all, I was only vaguely aware that it was a thing, you know, uh, mm -hmm. came up in conversation and I was only vaguely aware that, oh, Jack and Reed and the SFU pipe band put on like a, a summer school. And I was just thinking, oh, okay, whatever. And then Jack is basically says, oh yeah, we, we're I want you to teach at the school. And I was like, oh, okay. I just kind of assumed it was like maybe a thing where a few people came out. But anyway, when once you get up the hill, you realize it's like this massive galts gulch of just, deal. well, it's a super huge deal. It's the biggest, it was the biggest piping school I'd ever seen in my whole life. And still is, I think. Yeah, until um, calm before the winter storm takes it over, of course. But yeah. Well, no, we have a cap of, I mean, we have, we might have the best name yeah. And that's in dispute, but no, we have a cap of 20 people. So, so no. piping hot summer drum will remain huge. Yeah, I will. I think so. But anyway, it was, yeah, it was this big, amazing thing. And I found myself teaching, uh, uh, you know, on, on the staff of this really cool thing. It was like a big you, aha moment for me. Do you feel like that's the kind of experience where looking back, it's a good thing you were young and somewhat ignorant because if you'd known what a big deal it was, you would never have been able to do it? I would have been able to do it. I have a, I have chronic overconfidence in my ability to do anything. <laughs> so I would have been able to do it, but yeah, no, it it really helped to be young and naive just to yeah. get, you know, just to get started with teaching because of course the more old and wise you get, you know, the it's a case, a strong case of the more you learn, the less, you know, Yeah. in a lot of different respects. So yeah, so it was, and it was a great place to be young and naive too, because you had, you know, Jack and Terry and Reed Maxwell, and then, you know, all of these experienced, super experienced pipers in the SFU pipe band. So they were always able to nudge you in a better direction when you inevitably mm -hmm. faux pod with your, with your teaching. <clears throat> so speaking of better directions, you mentioned at the beginning of the chapter that among many other things that you were learning from Jack, one that really stands out is well his focus certainly but first and foremost his focus on making piping fun yeah and, and you mentioned that at that time that was actually a difficult thing for you to take in and i'm curious i mean you mentioned that you it's not that you disagreed with him but is it just that f piping was already so fun for you that you didn't understand why that would need to be i mean i, I i'm thinking about when i was playing pipes at 17 it definitely wasn't work at that point, right? And so is that why it was weird for you? That you were like, what do you mean? Of course it's fun. Yeah, maybe. I think there's a little bit of that. And I think that there's also a little bit of the other side of things. I think we talked about that in a recent episode, you know, falling in love with the problem. So uh, I think at that point, you're already kind of in love with the problem. And mm -hmm. so to just come on out and get to work on extremely, you know, gut-wrenchingly difficult tasks 
I think to me, that's already, by the time you're a professional piper playing an SFU pipe in, you're already there. You're already like, that's what you do on a day-to-day basis and you've learned to enjoy it. But that's not normal for a beginning student. So I think it's both ends of that continuum, right? It's so, so it's, yeah, of course it's fun. It's bagpiping. Hello. But also it's like, yeah. So now that we have the basic idea of how we might tune our drones, let's just do it at 15,000 times real quick. Yeah. <laughs> it's the monotony you know? of the tasks so often, isn't it? That's really killer. Yeah. So there's a disconnect. I think there's a, I, I think there's a disconnect between teacher and student oftentimes. Hu- mm-hmm. and, and by the way, and then it tends to be a, a huge one. I think certainly maybe if you're less experienced, it's like my idea of fun is very different than yeah. the idea of somebody who is, who really just does this as kind of like a knee jerk fun hobby thing. Yeah. My, my kids are going to hate me someday for so many reasons. And one of them will definitely be bringing them up so often when talking to you about learning music, but I can't help yes. thinking about my kids trying to learn piano right now and other instruments too and how when they when we are working on something whether it's like a crossover where their fingers need to cross under you know when they're playing a piano scale or something difficult for them they'll work on it and work on it and work on it and they'll get it right one time and they'll go Mm -hmm. ah there i'm done and they'll want to get up and walk away from the piano (laughs) and they'll say nope come back (laughs) now that you got it right one time we're going to get it right 15 times in a row then you can get up and even 15 times in a row doesn't necessarily mean you've got it either. But I think right, odds yeah. are better. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> and I think we've had that discussion on the podcast too, I hope. The discussion of we're, uh, striving for unconscious competence. Oh, I thought you meant the discussion of me being a terrible father. Well, that, I, I mean, that's just how we get started each day. Yeah. But uh, the power of unconscious competence is amazing. But yeah, yeah when you're well, when you're a young kid, that'd be one thing, but when you're just starting something out, yeah, that temptation is always there as well. So I did it once. It's yeah. Cool, bro. You (laughs) know, maybe that's a good example of how to keep it fun is just let them have that. And just, you know, because what comes next is actually probably the hard part. Yeah. It's, you know, uh... you're capable of it, but to recruit, but to reproduce it is, you know, painfully difficult thing. Yeah, and, and to be able to reproduce it like on command consistently, you know, in your next performance or when you're passing it off for your instructor or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But the very bagpipey thing that comes to my mind when thinking about this is when we were starting the pipe band that we have here locally, after we'd been playing for a year or two, we were talking about just as a band, how we really wanted our community band to be very fun. We wanted it to be very family focused. So we had often a member of the band or a spouse, someone would be there to kind of help wrangle kids so people could show up with their little kids and still be able to play, you know, because a lot of what we were doing was bringing pipers and drummers out of retirement, as it were, because they were in that kind of phase of life and saying, this is a very chill kind of environment. Just come as you are and play if you can and stuff. And But we were talking about how there's a balance where it's fun to be chill but it's also really fun to get better and it's fun to feel good about your performance and it's fun to win. You know, those things are fun too. And like you mentioned, I don't have fun. I don't have fun being chill, Jim. Yeah. (laughs) We all have our, we all fall somewhere on that spectrum, don't we? (laughs) But you do mention in here, you say that the bagpipe freedom process could be easily criticized from afar as being not fun. And I feel like this is part of that, right? Where it's like, 
I can totally see that how someone could look at the everything that Dojo does, really, in, including the tuning clinic that you've recently put together, right? That and be like, that is not fun, right? But like what I'm trying mm. to get across to my kids when I say no, we're going to do it 12 more times, is that if you go through that, maybe you can find a way to make that fun. But certainly, what you come out with on the other end, knowing your instrument better, having cleaner fingers, and being able to express yourself through that music. That's really fun. And so it proves mm -hmm. itself worthwhile, you know? Totally. Well, do you want a, would you rather have a Porsche? Okay. Or would you rather just have complete financial freedom in 10 years? You could have mm. a Porsche today or complete financial freedom for the rest of your life beginning in 10 years. Which one do you pick? I'm kind of irresponsible. That's, that's really I know, kind of right? Hard. Well, the Porsche is tempting, and the Porsche yeah. would be a lot more fun right now. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. And then I also think, yeah. And so, but meanwhile, the correct answer to that question is financial freedom forever. But, yeah, you no, know, wait, as a result Andrew, of 10 years of work. We, we've got to adjust that question. It's got to be more like, okay. would you rather have 15 sets of bagpipes right now? Right. <laughs> right. Or financial freedom in 10 years. Yep. Settle for four sets of bagpipes now and achieve financial freedom later. Yeah. So it's a, definitely a bit of a delayed gratification issue, mm -hmm. I think, as well. Right? Yeah. So you can play really crappy bagpipe stuff, right? You can mm -hmm. do a really crappy job and you can go play parades and people are going to love it. You can have, you know, you can have the fun equivalent of a Porsche. It can be done. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. in my, well, in my opinion, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people are perfectly fine with that, but that's a shame. And not because of some snobby guy, you know, that likes to listen to Peabrock and go to Oban and Everness. Not because I'm a snobby guy and wish that everyone played great. But because I wish that people saw that with just a little bit of effort applied across a couple of years, like the, the fun level, right? And just talking about bagpipe freedom in general. If you could get, if you can work and get yourself to that point, what lays in front of you is really infinite, like next level transcendent fun. Yeah, I, I get that. You see it as unfortunate because you can see how much more fun they could be having if they keep grinding a little longer, keep pushing a little harder. Absolutely. Yep, yeah. exactly. And I think that's the burden of any teacher, right? Mm -hmm. Like, to, you know, if you're a math teacher, seventh grade math teacher, it's, man, it's too bad Timmy just likes chasing the girls. Because if he sat down and he worked on his math, like he could have a lifetime of really awesome math mm. stuff. Yeah. I think it's, seriously though, I think it might be the burden of any teacher is like, you see the potential, but for whatever reason, this, the student is either perfectly content with just like the layer one fun, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or fun or utility, like in, in school, it's just, like, I just got to get 95, right? So I get mm -hmm. good grades, right? And that was like, probably me in a lot of subjects at school where I would have had a lot of potential, but you, well, I wasn't interested in that. I was just basically interested in bagpipes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can relate to that though. For me, it was more like, I just got to get 54%. I can get right. out of here. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so it might be the burden of any teacher because you see the potential and, yeah. and the student is not getting it. Now, meanwhile, maybe you could say a great teacher is someone who's good at bridging the gap. 
Like Laura Dern from October Sky. Oh, what a great movie. I lo- you know, I every now and then I, I, I come across that movie and you're like, darn, I'm just going to have to watch this again because yeah. it's so, so great. great. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, you do mention in here, and I think that this is a great insight, that you suggest that it's not the hard work that Pipers hate. It's the empty result that Ooh, that's yeah. what they hate. Yeah. So maybe could you dig into that a little bit for me and tell me a little bit more about that idea? Because that strikes me as important. For sure. Why do people choose the Porsche today? Mm. It's not a good choice. Cool, However, well, but then how, and, that, and then there's no guarantee of financial mm. freedom in 10 years. Like there's a lot of risk yeah. in the work, right? So, and you can sense that. So it's like, dang, I better strike while the iron's hot. Porsche, let's go. Even though the Porsche loses half its value the moment you drive it off the lot yeah, and all that it's, stuff. It's like, it's, I'm going to have fun while I can because yes. yeah, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Exactly right. And so what tends to happen, what tends to happen with bagpiping is you do start to get into it. You do start to have a little bit of fun, but then, you know, most people, a shockingly depressingly high number of people hit a plateau pretty early on that they're never, that they never, they, they can never get over. Mm-hmm. And that's for a variety of reasons. Usually the reason is that teachers are unable to help them get to the next level, either because the teacher, the teachers are stuck themselves, mm-hmm. right? You know, or the teacher could be a great player, but they're just not doing a good job communicating the important concepts. Mm-hmm. Like the perfect vanilla example of that is most people... Most teachers, even really great players that teach, the thing I see all the time that just drives me bananas is even pure beginners get fully embellished scores to work on. Hey, Mm. go home and learn this for next week. It's like, whoa, whoa. Mm. All those embellishments are there. And we don't really have a good scale navigation without crossing noises yet. That's Mm. the good vanilla example. Well, that's not good teaching. And what that does, unfortunately, is it instills bad habits almost immediately, right? Mm. And then now you have to unravel your bad habits for months or years before you can then build good habits for months or years again. So, you know, all of those things happen, right? And we build in the bad habits and then people get to a point where, (laughs) man, so now you get to a point where you're no longer satisfied with just playing the parades and yeah. getting getting the beer spilled all over you, but that's about that's like basically the most fun you can hope for. So, have you ever met a piper who's just sort of just per, permanently parade piping? And mm, yeah, they it, it's like basically the only reason they even do that is because they bought the set of pipes, and you know they they feel guilty about not using them, and then that's all you do. Yeah, yeah, that and also maybe adding a little nuance to the picture. Sometimes there's still a good social aspect to it or something like that. So there's still some satisfaction coming from it, but they want to play better, right? But aren't Mm -hmm. sure maybe how to do that, you know, or they've kind of reached a ceiling of kinds or a wall of sorts. Or you, yeah, or you start to believe the fallacy that you just don't have the gift. Right. They think that's where, that's as far as they can go. Yep. Just wasn't for me. It does, maybe this is too far out there, but it does strike me like, I've thought often before that I was very, very lucky that I came to piping through a school program as a kid, which I, you can probably relate to this, right? Where like, 
I, part of it is that I was just, I was a dumb kid, right? And like, I was in the mode of do what you're told, go home, do your homework, show up to class every day, right? So it's almost mm. like I didn't have the busyness of life to get in the way. And I also didn't even realize it was an option to not do the things I was being told to do. And so in a way, I kind of got dragged along through the first few hurdles of learning bagpipes. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think of an instrument I might have picked up as an adult. I've got an accordion sitting next to me here. And in all honesty, Andrew, I worked hard when I first picked up this accordion. And I figured out how to play the one, three, four, and five chords to play in C, G, and D major. Nice. And I kind of, once I got there, I could play a lot of songs and I stopped working. And it's 10 years now, and I really don't play the accordion any better than I did 10 years ago. And right. I wish I did, and I want to, but there is no curriculum or instructor or upcoming performance or anything like that to drag me through the next hurdle to achieve yeah. that next like step of, you might say, freedom, fun, etc. I feel like I was very lucky to have that with bagpipes. And so I'm very sympathetic to that experience for anybody as an adult learner who comes to bagpipes kind of as a thing they're doing on their own kind of thing, right? It's, it's a different way, and it takes more work in a lot of ways, I think, you know, to, to come to it in that way. Right. Which makes me think yeah, of someone who did that, Barb. You talk about Barb in this chapter, and I wonder if maybe her example is a great way to talk about, like, how do you keep powering through and find more fun? So Barb had a ton of crossing noises. And it was really plaguing her playing. And she's a great example of how when we, uh, at Dojo, when we did the quantum rhythm shift and we took some time, I, I sort of forced everybody to take some time out and just work on the rhythm and getting actually rhythmically accurate and actually thinking about it. That was something that really greatly benefited Barb. I mean, she showed up, you know, a couple of weeks later and started playing stuff again. And like, all, where'd all the crossing noises go? And she didn't even, yeah. I don't think she even realized it at the time. Because crossing noises are things where sometimes you have a lot of them because you don't even really, you're not even really hearing them yet. So at that time, maybe Barb wasn't even really hearing that she had them. So she didn't even really notice that she didn't have them anymore. But mm -hmm. I noticed. They were all gone. So and it was like, great. Did you proactively point it out to her? Because you do mention in here, you say that the true fun sometimes is actually making progress. You see and feel those amazing results that come from moving toward creative freedom. So did you have to point that out to her actively or did she like realize it eventually? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, yeah. And we were certainly very active pointing it out during, mm. you know, beforehand when she had tons of crossing noises. You know, that was the takeaway from every lesson, right? You got to fix the crossing noises. And she's like, oh, okay. And then you got to fix the crossing noises. Oh, okay. You know, mm. crossing noises, are, your fingers aren't moving. And so that gets very frustrating. And then there you go. How do you get past that? It turns out working on crossing noises, maybe that'll get you past it, but it's way less efficient than getting to the root of the problem and addressing that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then a lot of pipers and piping teachers have a problem or have challenges getting to the root of the problem. Yeah, that's key, isn't it? You and I have talked before about my, my serious problem with F-doublings that I could never get. I just, F-doublings are killing me. Right. Um, not which a, is in not... itself, which is in itself to me, when I hear somebody say that, I'm like, oh, they just, they're clearly not understanding the problem. Right. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that like an F doubling is what you'd call a high level problem, but you know, the whole idea, right. Is that any problem 
if you can get to the root of the problem, that's how you'll fix it. And so maybe your bad F doublings. Yeah, your bad F doublings are a symptom of the real problem. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which is probably. Yeah, well, and I can tell you what it is as someone because everybody has the F doubling problem, right? The root of the F doubling problem is almost certainly just a rhythmic inaccuracy problem, right? And then it may be compounded a little bit by less than optimal grace note technique, but probably not. It's usually just rhythm. Once we fix it, people, the F doublings aren't a problem anymore. And that was true for me. I, you know, I had that same, I had that same epiphany. Uh, I wasn't terrible at F doublings, but they were inconsistent. And then I just, you know, I don't really miss them anymore. Hmm. <laughs> you don't miss them anymore. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. <laughs> I, I remember Jack Lee told me that one time. He was like, you know, I remember one year I didn't miss a single embellishment. <laughs> and I, and he wasn't bragging. He wasn't bragging or joking. He was just like, just looking yeah. back. Those are the good old days. You know, and like now he misses one out of 10 billion. So (laughs) it's his, I suddenly can't remember the name of the famous crooner who's saying, I I did it my way and stuff like that. What was that guy's name? Sinatra? Was that Frank Sinatra? I don't know. Yeah. It was a very good year. (laughs) Something like Jack Lee singing, like when I was 32, I didn't miss a single embellishment. It was a very good year. Yeah. It's probably, you know, it's probably not. Untrue. Mm-hmm. See what it did there? Um, well, going on in the chapter, you talk about how similar to the way that vowels and consonants function in, mm. in, in what, a symbiotic relationship in the English language, we've got the melody layer functioning in music with what, the rhythmic stuff as well? Is that kind of the vowel consonant thing? Say that again. Is it that we have the melody is our vowels and then the timing between notes is our consonants? Is that kind of the idea there? Sort of. So that, yeah, the, so in speech, we have vowel sounds that fill the, it fills the space, right? And mm-hmm. then generally speaking, our consonants are what articulate those vowel sounds. And fascinatingly, uh, it's the consonants that give meaning to words more than anything else. We have a, a we have several vowel sounds. I think we have I forget what the number is, like thirteen different vowel sounds mm-hmm. that we use in the English language, or something like that. And that's really it. And then we have a variety of consonant sounds and combinations that we use. For example, cat, right? Ah is the vowel sound, right? And then ca, the c, the c sound is what starts the word cat. But then the T sound at the end is another consonant articulation. And by the way, I don't know anything about language at all. So this is probably really uh, insulting some people. I was hoping we are going to start talking about the Kentum-Centum divide with the letter C or something. I thought you were going no, <laughs> It would be great to, in another life, look into this yeah. more. But yeah, so then you have T at the end of the word cat. And then that's what makes the word cat. And then fascinatingly, if I change the T to a P sound cap its meaning is wildly different such a tiny change there yeah yeah well and if you think about if you think about it in terms of time duration right the letter the time it takes to say the letter t is i don't know a tenth of a second or something or less right and same with the letter p so in in terms of time duration that tiny little tiny change totally changes the meaning of the word however my i get think my point here <clears throat> is that 
bagpipe melodies are very similar. So we have mm-hmm. our melody notes, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, G. No, at G, it goes back. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, back to A, et cetera. So we have those melody notes. We don't have that many of them on the bagpipe. So we've got these melody notes that we play. And then we have these grace notes and perhaps ultimately some embellishment that comes in and can articulate those notes. But that's really our repertoire, right? And then the grace notes should be thought of as articulations, just like consonants articulate vowel sounds. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not trying to knock our instrument, of course, but, you know, we only have so many notes. Of course, then again, too, if you think about it, right, all of Western music really has the same notes. It's just whether or not we have, like, more octaves of those same notes. Yeah. But yeah, that, those changes of how you articulate those notes, that can, that's a big part of what makes the difference from one tune to the next, isn't it? You know, a lot of times <laughs> pipers lament that we only have nine notes, but we also have shockingly few um, articulations as well, ways we can articulate the notes. Where if you take a violin, for example, you can bow it, you can pluck it. What else can you do? You can put those little, <clears throat> the little vibrator machines on it. Have you ever seen mm-hmm. those? That make those long things. I feel like there's more. Oh, you could strum it. Totally. You could strum it. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the same with the trumpet, right? You can tongue the note. You could just initiate the note without the tongue. And then you could also play legato. So there's like a whole bunch of options there. But yeah, bagpipers have very, very limited arsenal of -hmm. things that we can do. Well, so then looking at the melody itself, you say, you say in here, playing a well-articulated melody is pretty straightforward. Step one, and this is just step one of two, so it's a pretty quick little list. Step one, play those melody notes with no unwanted interference sounds between the notes, i.e. Mm-hmm. no crossing noises. Correct. And step two, play all the grace notes infinitely small to articulate that melody without interfering with the melody. That's That can be hard to do. That's yeah, keeping them tight enough that they don't start lobbing over into the melody and getting in the way of it that's a challenge that's right and the default value for a grace note is what we call infinitely small Mm. right so and then jim i don't know maybe on the edit you can bring up the somewhere we have the the illustration of that yes sir i'll pull that up for you bit yeah we've got the illustrations in the book just about the consequences of what happens if you play melody or, or grace notes bigger than infinitely small becomes quite Mm -hmm. problematic, right? So if the grace notes become too big, they start to interfere with the melody notes. Two things can happen, right? Number one is the time duration of the grace note can swallow up small melody notes. Mm -hmm. And that happens all the time, right? I'll just, I'll give you a little demonstration. Jim's, no, because this makes (laughs) it to add it harder. Uh, We'll do a little demonstration. So, you know, the flat from Flada, right? If you play grace notes too big, we get this. Right? I'm actually playing flat from Flada brilliantly there. I am. It's a true story. I'm going to change nothing except for the length of the grace notes now, and you're going to hear a big difference. Right? Seriously. I was playing great before. I was just purposely making one small mistake. And now it sounds like this. Right? Brilliant. Come on, Jim. You got to hand it to me. That was pretty good. So, 
So you're saying so, that any of us might have a, a brilliant performance that's just being hidden behind this veil of too big. Grace notes that are too big. It's not super likely. There's likely this shrinking of your grace notes is going to reveal a whole bunch of crossing noises. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, however, but yes, conceptually, right. So conceptually, well, and then certainly we need the grace notes to be very small. So going back to the big grace note example, right? Um, where's the melody there? You can hear the, how the melody is frustratingly difficult to grasp, right? Okay, that's because the grace notes are so big that we're almost starting to get... If those grace notes are so big, they start to sound almost like melody notes themselves. Yeah. Right? So now we have this miscellaneous weird grace note pattern Okay, that doesn't have anything to do with the melody interrupting everything. Yeah. Okay. And then and then also because the melody notes are so big, we can't really hear the rhythm, right? Like where does the beat go on a grace note that's very long? Is the beat at the beginning of the grace note or at the end? And whatever you it doesn't really matter what you pick because it sounds terrible anyway, right? Yeah. And then finally, if you have short notes, they tend to get swallowed up, right? Yeah. <laughs> So that little short E, we like that E, but we're not hearing it really, are we? Because the G grace note is so big, right? It has to eat into something, right? So if these grace notes are on a short note, it's going to eat into those short notes. So we're not going to be able to hear them anymore. Okay. Yeah. So now, meanwhile, if we manage to get our grace notes very small, Right now we can hear all those notes that we want to, and we can even play those nice fancy embellishments in there. And it's actually doing something for the cause because the grace notes are being well played. Yeah, that sound mm -hmm. is just such a familiar sound that working through it with grace notes that are too big. And it, it occurs to me too that like, because the rest of us are pipers and know the tune, we can like work with that in our heads. We can go, okay, well, I know how it's supposed to go, but... That's not what we want, right? We don't want our listeners to be having to interpret what we're playing into what we intended it to be. We want to be playing a thing that the focus isn't up here doing work. It's, uh, you know, on the music yeah. that we're making and enjoying that music directly. That's a great point. Yeah. You don't want to have to say, you don't want to have to say to your audience, trust me, guys, this is really good music you're about to hear. Right. Yeah. But bagpipers <laughs> do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, and Pebrock is a great one, right? Pebrock, by the way, don't let me go down a rabbit hole here. Just want to touch on this one really quickly. Yeah. Pebrock such a great example of that. It's so, guys, I'm not going to go into a 13-minute explanation about why you should find listening to this Pebrock interesting, yeah. right? And then you do it, and then everyone's like, whoa. And it's like, what did you like about the Pebrock? It's like, well, the, I could really hear the battle. And it's like, okay, cool. So you needed that 13-minute introduction for it to be explained to you why that was cool. Now, meanwhile, I, you know, it's my opinion that great P-Rock players, they can play any P-Rock, and it's exciting to listen to. The explanation's cool, but you don't need it. Right. Yeah, it, it is a great joke that if your explanation about the P-Rock takes longer than playing the P-Rock, maybe something's not going right. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Um, and it's Or another one is you hear a... You hear like this horrible tune, right? And it's terrible. 
But then so when they stopped, they're like, that was a tune I wrote for my grandmother's 95th birthday. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, that Piper was just the greatest. Yeah. Yeah. I roll. Let, let, lesson learned. Every tune you ever write, <laughs> dedicate it to somebody in a very heart-wrenching way, and nobody will ever say anything mean about your tunes. <laughs> yes, that's the secret. That's the secret. Well, and even better, taking this away from joking, being slightly more legit, you know, the best tunes are the ones that have a wonderful melody that can stand alone on its own. And then oftentimes they can be augmented with a great story. Like the Battle of the Somme is like a perfect example. Yeah. Or the Bloody Fields of Flanders or, you know, like any of these historical tunes that at least purportedly represent these great historical events or people, stuff like that. It can be pretty cool. So what about size and sync? That's a little thing that comes up in this chapter. We talked about yeah. size. That's our infinitely small thing, right? Correct. So what's the sync part of this size and sync? So originally, I'm, you know, back in the caveman days, grace notes probably were only used in the beginning. Uh, grace notes were probably only used to separate two of the same note in a row. That's like mm. the initial, that's the initial use of a grace note. So if you have... Uh, twinkle little star, right? Each melody note is doubled. But we can't do that with our tongue on the bagpipes, can we? So we have to separate those notes in some way. And so, you know, grace notes came out and they probably were originally mostly strikes. Mm. Something like that, right? That makes sense. And so like primitive bagpipe music probably sounded like that, right? And then uh, over time, you'd probably make other discoveries. Oh, I can actually do a grace note from above the note, right? Right. And then probably over a little bit more time, you started to realize, actually, this trigger finger on my left hand, that's like really my best option. So then you would have... Because like basically... Almost regardless of what note I'm playing, I always have that G grace note I can use. So suddenly that's right. like your go-to guy, probably. But then even further on down the line, you probably start to realize that I can actually play grace notes even if I don't need them, right? And it can add organization and texture to the music. And that, I think, over time has evolved into what I would now call the, the bagpipe grace note system. Right? G grace notes, D grace notes, strikes, E grace notes, stuff like that. And they're all organized in a very specific way. But anyway, as soon as you start playing grace notes when you don't need them and during a note change, okay, now that infinitely small grace note has to be perfectly aligned with the moment that you change notes, okay, or you're going to run into trouble. So, for example, going back to the flat from Flada example, right? We have that G grace note to C in the beginning, right? We're coming from E to C with a G grace note. Now, if I don't play that in sync, right? I'm playing all those G grace notes out of sync to the C. Jim, it looks like you froze. Oh, hey, Jim. Sorry about that. 
the last I could see, at least, was you about to play with your grace notes out of sync. Right, exactly. So when when I was playing fl from Flada there, mm. and I'm just playing a simple version here. Sorry, that was bad. Let me do that again. So much for never missing anything for a whole year. <laughs> okay, something like that. So we're going from the E down to the C like that. Okay, now, if my grace note goes out of sync with the note change, we start to hear stuff like this. So I'm changing to the note, and then the grace note is happening. By mm -hmm. the way, an astute listener would also recognize that you could have the grace note come in before the note change as well. It's something like that, right? Where the grace note is actually firing a little bit early. Maybe that's a little bit more rare, but it totally happens. Sometimes it sounds okay. kind of cool, though, honestly. If you were doing that on purpose, you know, consistently, right. I'd be like, hey, that's kind of cool. Exactly. Well, and I, you know, in that case, I am doing it on purpose for demonstration. Right, so right, that, yeah. make, that makes me very cool. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gonna take right, that internet? compliment. <laughs> right, Internet? Yeah, exactly. Please confirm in the comments. All mm. right. So the grace notes go out of sync there. So there's two things we need in order for a grace note to be a good grace note. We need it to be infinitely small. And if it's happening during a note change, we need it to be synchronized to happen at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. Fun, fun times. Yeah. So when putting this, taking these concepts and putting them into practice, I think that it was, is probably very tempting. It certainly is for me to think to myself, all right, this is great advice. Next time I'm learning a tune, I'll try to keep this in mind. Mm -hmm. But you suggest in the chapter, I ought to take these ideas and apply them to tunes I already know. Yes. That's what I ought to be doing. Agreed. Just wanted to bring that up in case anybody like me is thinking to themselves, oh, okay, I'll apply this next time I learn a tune. No, maybe go back in the parade repertoire, you know, the current competition medley, whatever it is. Maybe try kind of re refreshing these tunes with these concepts in mind might be very useful as a practice. Especially if you're in a rut with your tunes or your practice and you're not quite sure what to do next, a great thing to do would be simplify the tunes that you know are really easy for you and really familiar. Simplify them down to basic grace note settings. And then, yeah, work on that absolute rhythmic accuracy. Work on the absolute accuracy of your note changes and the absolute infinitely small nature of those grace notes. And just start to think about it each day. Those are the foundations. And we talked about, you know, Jim, he's got F, F doubling problems. No, he doesn't, right? He has problems with his, uh, his fundamentals. And that's manifesting in the bad F doubling. Yeah. True story, right? So True what story. would most people do? Most people would just practice some F doubling exercises in vain, not to see much improvement. Does that sound familiar, Jim? Yeah, as I have done, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so most people would practice the F doublings in vain, see no real improvement, and then put down the pipes and go watch Oprah. Always Oprah. That's always what I go to. Right. Well, now it's Alan. But nope. Yeah. Reruns of Oprah. Or Just watching President Oprah. Oprah. That's what I watch every time. Exactly. Well, there you go. And you get an F doubling. And you get an F doubling. <laughs> it's going to be great.